All right, let's take our Bibles this morning. We're going to be looking at the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We're also going to be in the book of Acts, so we'll be switching back and forth. I'm going to do a couple weeks of introduction to lay down some of the things that are important to get a handle on the Gospel of Mark and some of the things that I've discovered that are very important uh, for us to uh, get a sense of what this book is about and what, what... how important it is for us to study it. So let's uh, have a word of prayer before I look at the scripture. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you this morning for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I thank you, Lord, for how you superintended watching over your word as it was coming together, as you moved upon your disciples and your apostles uh, to remember what you did, what you said, and be able to put it now in writing, and then guided them to write. And we thank you, Lord, that the source of all Scripture is God himself. And we know that it is reliable. It has been tested. It has been proved. It has been attacked. And yet, Lord, it still stands strong. It is still the light of the world. And it is the very thing that your church and your people need to speak, learn, and teach So, Lord, we can know more about what you have done, so we can become more like you, so we can be servants within your church and in our life, so we can bring the gospel uh, to those who don't know you, and we can share the light of Jesus Christ with them, so they too can be saved. So I pray you would help us, Lord, now as we delve into this book. Uh, to get a grasp of it during these weeks ahead and months ahead. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we look at the Gospel of Mark, uh, the purpose of Mark's writing was actually to encourage the Gentile church in Rome. Now, he wants us to see. He wants us to see Christ as the suffering servant Savior. That's going to be the theme of the whole book. And he arranges his material to show Christ as one who speaks, one who acts, and delivers in the midst of crisis. So Mark is called the Go Gospel, the Gospel of the Servant Savior. And a key verse that summarizes the Gospel of Mark very well is found in chapter 10 and verse number 45, which a verse you probably know quite well, where it says there, for even the Son of Man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That would be the key passage of Scripture and the driving theme throughout the whole book, that the Son of Man, the man for all of us, came not to be waited on, but to actually wait on us and to give his life a ransom. So therefore, how can we seek our own when Christ did this for us? It is the, it, it is the gospel, the gospel of Mark can be, can bring really a profound servanthood and active power in our lives that we may have not known before because it is the gospel. You're going to find out once we get into it. It is the gospel of miracles. 
It is the gospel of power. It is the gospel of service. So as we go along, may, may it rub off on us as we study through this because our opportunities to serve are more than we can possibly imagine when we see Christ serving all through this particular book. So Mark wants to give us a portrait of what Jesus spoke, what Jesus did, and what he actually delivered. In fact, one of his favorite words that he uses all through the gospel is the word immediately. Or in the King James, uh, to be straightforward. All right? In fact, in the first chapter... He uses this word ten times. Let me just give you an example. Look at verse number ten. It says immediately, chapter one, verse ten, coming up out of the water. And then verse number twelve, immediately the Spirit impelled him. And then verse number seventeen, and Jesus said to them, "Follow me, and I will make I will make you become fishers of men." In verse eighteen, immediately they left their nets and follow him. And then verse number 20, the same thing, immediately. Verse number uh, 21, immediately they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath. And then all the way through, ten times. So his favorite verse, uh, word is immediately all throughout this book. Now that does say something. That means he gets right to the stuff. It is the shortest gospel um, and it is a gospel that is contained uh, all the necessary material that we need to know as believers to grow in Christ Jesus. In fact, for your information, Mark is called uh, is one of the synoptic gospels. May, now, maybe someone has never explained that term to you, but really, the first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are all known as synoptic gospels. All right, the word synoptic comes from two Greek words that means to see together. So that these three are called the synoptic gospels because they can be set down in parallel columns and their common matter looked at together, meaning they're very similar in how they set things up. Now, what is interesting is that it can be argued that the Gospel of Mark was the first of all the Gospels. Mark's Gospel is the earliest life of Jesus that has survived. And there are remarkable similarities between Matthew, Luke, uh, when set down aside, Mark. So again, that's why they're synoptics, because you can set them down together. Again, sin is together, like synagogue, they met together. Uh, and so that's what is going on here. So in other words, that Matthew, when he wrote, and Luke, when he wrote, set, looked, at Luke, uh, looked at Luke first before they actually wrote. Uh, and that is proven uh, many times over. They contain the same incidents and often told in the same words. They contain accounts of the te teaching of Jesus, which are often almost identical. And if one were to compare 
the first three Gospels. For example, the feeding of the 5,000 is mentioned in every one of the first the three Gospels. The, uh, and of course, one would see that it was told almost exactly in the same words in exactly the same way. And then, of course, the healing of the man that was sick with palsy found in uh, Mark chapter 2 and then Matthew chapter 9 and then Luke chapter uh, 5. And you would see that the accounts are so similar that even the little parenthesis, and he said to the paralytic, take up your you know, Matt and follow me, you know, uh, all of them, of course, almost exactly the same and exactly the same place. So see, Matthew and Luke very largely followed Mark's order of events with slight alterations. Therefore, one must conclude that at, cl- at close examination of the three gospel, it makes it clear that Matthew and Luke had Mark before them as they wrote. And they used his gospel as, as the basis into which they fitted the extra material in which they found it necessary to put in their gospel. So, so in that sense, that, this becomes a very important gospel. It becomes the first gospel uh, to actually be written. Now, in saying that, let me look at the author of this Gospel, and of course, the author of the gospel is uh, this first gospel is John Mark. He's the writer of this gospel. Now, he has an, an interesting life, John Mark. In fact, the New Testament tells us a good deal about him. I want to look at some of those things this morning because I believe they're important to inform us about the very man who wrote uh, the gospel of Mark. All right. Now, take your Bibles now and turn over to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. All right, you're going to, actually, you're looking forward, going forward to Acts chapter 12. And you'll find that the first thing is that he was the son of a well-to-do lady of Jerusalem whose name was Mary and whose house was a rallying point and a meeting place for the early church. So here's this young man. All right, he grows up, uh, and as the church is forming and growing, he's a young man in the midst of all this, learning all these things. And if you notice in verse number 11 of Acts chapter 12, it says, And when Peter came to himself, he says, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And then notice verse 12, And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who is also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Now, of course, what happened here was, is that Peter was released from prison when he was knocking at the door and nobody believed it. And Mark, uh, of course, Acts, uh, the gospel, excuse me, uh, Acts, the book of Acts records But Peter continued knocking, and when he had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. So Peter becomes a major influence and person, mentor, in John Mark's life. So he was there from the beginning. He was there when the Gospels, uh, when when the, 
the gospel was going out to all kinds of places and he was in the midst of it watching there and then he was actually part of a home in which uh, many gathered to pray, almost like a house church and experiencing all these things and all this fellowship. So as a young man, he was brought up to be the, at the very center of Christian fellowship. Now that always has uh, an impact on any young person who's involved with Christian things and Christian ministries and Christian activity. They're learning by observation and by experience at a young age before they may understand some things, and that's who he was there. That's what was going on there. And so that's the first thing to keep in mind. The second thing is that Mark was also the nephew of Barnabas. And when Paul and Barnabas set out on their first missionary journey, they took Mark with them. He was a young man. And they took him to be their secretary and attended. Obviously, Mark had some administrative skills. He was able to log things in and take notes for them and keep them up to date on things. And if you look right there in Acts chapter 12, go down to verse number 25. It says, And Barnabas... And Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who is also called Mark. So again, he's right in the middle of things. He's in the midst of uh, these mission, this first missionary journey, the Gospels going out for the first time to all these different and strange places, and he gets to tag along. Now, could you imagine that, tagging along? Well... Paul and Barnabas uh, and John Mark had a good ministry on the island of Cyprus, but next the Holy Spirit was directing them to go north toward Pisidian, Antioch, that's northern Turkey. That was about 150 miles by boat to the south coast of Asia Minor. And then they were to travel five miles to uh, up uh, the Kestis River to the port of Perga and from there to take a very dangerous journey through the rugged mountains where everyone knew it was notorious for ambushes and bandits, bandits and robbers. And so the scripture tells us that this young assistant, John Mark, deserts Paul and goes back to Jerusalem. And if you notice in Acts chapter 13, and verse 13 and 14, well, it says this, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea for Patmos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch. So Paul went on, and John Mark left them. Now that's not a good for your resume, uh, to be on this missionary, second missionary journey, uh, or the possibility of it, or on the first missionary journey, and take off. All right. Now, some people said, well, why did he do We don't really know why he took off, but some people have at least uh, inferred that he was afraid to go up through that part of the region as a young man. He knew what Paul was capable of when he was preaching. He wasn't afraid of anything, and he was afraid to go. Some people think that Possibly he was homesick. He's been on the road for a while. He wants to go home. Some, uh, I think it was Augustine who says he thought he wanted his mother. And uh, that could be the case. 
Maybe he's wanted his mom's cooking. Uh, some say that he thought that Barnabas was taking a second place to Paul, so he was kind of said he couldn't take it, so he left. And some people say that he was just weary from traveling. Now, it could have been some of them, all of them, none of them. But nonetheless, the Bible does record he left them. He did not go on with them. All right, so upon the second missionary journey that was, was being organized, Barnabas was anxious to take Mark with them. But Paul refused to have anything to do with him. So serious was the disagreement between Paul and Barnabas that Barnabas actually split company with Paul. And if you notice in Acts chapter 15, in verse number 37 to 40, we get the details of that. And it says this, And Barnabas was desirous, in verse number 37 of chapter 15, of taking John called Mark along with them also, but Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, and they separate from one another. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, being committed by the brethren to the grace of of the Lord. So we see that now Mark, John Mark is not part of the second missionary journey. Uh, he kind of drops out of the scene, drops out of scriptural history, but some believe that he went down to Egypt to start a church. Uh, some historians believe that's what took place uh, with him. We don't really know for sure, but we do know this that after a period of time, he reemerges. And to the surprise of everyone, Paul mentions him in the book of Colossians when Paul was in prison in Rome. And he said, and we find out that Mark is there with him. How did that happen? I don't know how that happened, but he says in the Word of God in Colossians, he says, My fellow prisoners send you his greeting, and also Barnabas' cousin Mark about whom you receive instructions if he comes to you, welcome him. So now he's endorsing Mark. Mark is with him while he's in prison. And you say, well, how did that happen? Well, the scripture doesn't really tell us how that happened. Obviously, he grew some, right? Obviously, he matured some. And he was making himself more of a servant in God's kingdom. And in God's works. So what we see, what, we, what happens is that when Paul was near the end of his life, matter of fact, he was waiting to die. What does he do? He writes to Timothy. And what does he say to Timothy? In 2 Timothy 4.11, he says, Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Now, obviously Mark redeemed himself and proved himself to be a real soldier. In fact, at the end of Paul's life, he wanted Mark, John Mark, in his foxhole. To me, that's amazing because, you know what, it, it tells me we all have hope, right? Isn't it great how the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and his spirit 
can transform a person into his likeness and make them a servant like they never thought they could be. So see, it does tell us that we all have hope to be useful servants in God's kingdom. So none of us this morning are beyond hope, all right? If he can be redeemed, so can we be redeemed. And so, so, so this is the man who pens the gospel of Mark. And of course, you see where the Lord, how the Lord took him through this growth cycle and these trials and these tribulations and matured him to the place that he could actually write down by the Spirit of God what God wanted him to write about the person, the work, the life of Jesus Christ. Now, the question does come up at this point, where did John Mark actually get his material from to write the gospel? Well, John Mark, this may be uh, take you by surprise, John Mark was not an apostle. He was not an apostle. In fact, Papias at the end of the second century, tells us that Mark's gospel is nothing other than a record of the preaching material of the apostle Peter. I said Peter was, became an important part of his life way in the beginning. And so he, he always was listening and, and probably been around Peter more than he was around Paul and Barnabas. And Papias wrote this, and I quote, Mark who was Peter's interpreter, wrote down accurately, though not in order, all he recollected of what Christ had said and done, for he was not a hearer of the Lord or a follower of his... He was a follower of Peter. In other words, John Mark didn't have, wasn't there when Jesus was alive. He did, wasn't able to hear Jesus speak. He wasn't able to follow Jesus around like the apostles, but he was able to follow Peter around, who was an apostle, who saw and heard Jesus teach. And so Peter, in his epistle, calls John Mark, you may not have picked this up, but he says in 1 Peter 5.13, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greeting, and so does my son Mark. So obviously, uh, Peter considers... Mark to be so close as to call him his son. And so that that becomes very interesting that his material comes from the preaching of Peter. And so he gathers, taking notes, gathering the information, gathering the, the acts, the deeds, the words of Jesus Christ, and he's bringing them together so he can pen them and put them in a book for all of us. And it becomes the 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 most important, the key gospel for even uh, Mark and Luke, or Matthew and Luke. And so that becomes very important. So there are three, really, reasons uh, that Mark is a book of supreme importance for you and I to study. And here's the first one, which I mentioned, that it's the earliest of all the gospels. Probably written shortly after Peter's death, around A.D. 65, and so the, the, the dating is a little in question. But after Nero 
brought persecution upon the Christians sometimes between A.D. 60 and 70, according to the Roman historian Tactius. Nero made the Christians scapegoats for the burning of Rome and butchered them wholesale, so the church was driven into the catacombs. I don't know if you've ever been over to Rome uh, and uh, got a chance to go into the catacombs. But, I mean, it's really going into underground and all real narrow passages, and all they are is tombs. They would carve out a thing, stick a body in there, just it, just like that. And there was like three stacked up on, on each side. And the Christians were forced at this time to meet together so they would not be killed uh, in the catacombs. Now, what was important about that is that's when, Paul, that's when Mark writes his gospel. He writes his gospel at that point. And why does he do that? Because these persecuted believers needed something quick and concise to remind them of their Savior to remind them of how Jesus Christ was a servant Savior and how he ministered to people, and that would bring encouragement to them, and that's what it actually did. So that the first reason was that it was the earliest, and it was written during the time when the Christians were most pers- persecuted. Secondly, it embodies uh, the record of what Peter preached and taught about Jesus. The Gospel of Mark is the nearest approach we will ever possess to an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. And then, of course, thirdly, uh, that Mark's aim was to give a picture of Jesus as he was, of what Jesus said without a lot of frills, without, without a lot of extras, what he did. He tells the facts about Jesus' life in the simplest and, the, and in the most dramatic way. And he never forgets the divine side of Jesus. And no gospel, no gospel gives us a human picture of Jesus like the gospel of Mark. He retains the, the God-man of Jesus Christ in such a unique way. You cannot walk away. As a matter of fact, there's more miracles recorded in Mark than any other place. Right? So he thought that was important for people to know. And Mark invoked a wonder and an astonishment and an awe as he displayed Jesus Christ in his gospel. Now, if you look right back to Mark chapter 1 again, you're going to find that Mark's likes using this word also. He likes using the word, you know, am- wonderment, amazement, and all in Mark chapter 1, verse 22, it says, and they were amazed at his teaching. He was teaching them as one having authority and not at the, as the scribes. And then verse 27 of chapter 1, they were all amazed so that they debated among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching? What authority? He commands even the unclean spirit, and they obey him. And then in chapter 6, in verse number 51, again, the same kind of thing. It says there, then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. And then, of course, in chapter 10, verse 24, does the same thing. 
The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. And then he says it again in verse number 26 of that chapter. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? See, he presents Jesus Christ in a way where people were astonished at his teaching. It's like, listen, if you were there listening to Jesus speak, you would be astonished. You would be awestruck about what he was saying. You would receive authority that you never heard before. That's how he's writing his gospel. He wants to write it like you were there. And so he, that's why he writes it in very short sentences, very quick, very, matter of fact, the gospel of John's the simplest Greek. It's the street Greek. It's the, hey, yo, Greek. You know what I mean? Yo, you know? That's the kind of Greek it is because it would relate to anyone who ever heard it. And so he writes in the, the simplest way possible, and he does it intentionally because he wants the message to have an impact on everybody who would read it or hear it. And I think as we go along, you're going you're gonna to feel that even more that, uh, about who Jesus Christ is and what he has done and, and how he uh, who he is in his person that you don't really get in other places. And of course, that's the point. Every gospel has a different view of Jesus. In Mark, it's going to be he's a servant. You know, in Matthew, it's going to be he's a king. In John, it's going to be he's God. And so, see, all everyone is looking at Jesus in a different way, so we get a whole picture of who he is, so we too can be excited about it, because you know what? If we have to fall in love with anybody, it's got to be Jesus Christ. If you're going to stay away from your sin, you've got to love the Lord. If you're going to live your life in a way that's going to be a servant, you've got to love Christ more than anything else. And if you love him, you will love people, and you'll love what he has for you to do. You will love that, and you will realize that he is not only a God who who speaks and acts, he is a God who actually accomplishes. He accomplishes. So without the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's nothing. And Paul, I mean, Luke actually brings it to that place, that he brings it to the place where, or Mark, where we see that. So there's going to be two essential questions that is going to come up in, in Mark over and over again. That the Gospel of Mark is so needed for our times that this first century account of the person of Jesus Christ is just as radical today as it was among the Jews in first century Palestine. Radical, why? Because the testimony of the Gospel of Mark pushes us against uh, the preconceived expectations of who Jesus is. Not only in their day, but in our day. In other words, there is always the danger of misrepresenting truth, especially the truth about Jesus, who he was, what he did, what he accomplished. And, of course, the, ent- the essence of real, genuine, biblical faith. What is it? Well, we find out very clearly what it is. So the question is going to be, from the disciples, is who is he? Who is he? It reverberates throughout the Gospel of Mark's account, uh, and it becomes a leading theme as passages like Mark chapter 4 and verse number 41 where he says there, and they became, and they became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even in the wind and the sea obey him? Now could, could you imagine being there? 
being on the sea and Jesus is sleeping there in the boat and everything is chaos around. They're going to lose their lives and he's calmly sitting there, wakes up, rebukes the wind and the waves and everything stops. It's like the Truman Show. If you ever watched that movie where they're, you know, everything's remote control. They control the weather, the rain, the, you know, the sun, the storms. And, um, and that's what's going on there. And he, when that happens, they're looking at each other. Who, who, he looks like a human being. He looks just like us. And yet, who is this guy? But you know what? That should be our question. Who is Jesus? We've got to get the answer from the Word of God. You can't get it from anywhere else. In fact, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus, it says there in verse 27, and Jesus went out among his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples. It's neat how Jesus questions his disciples. And what did he, what did he ask them? Who do people say that I am? And what did they answer him? Lord, some people say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say one of the prophets. All right? And then, of course, after they're done, what does Jesus say in verse 29 of Mark chapter 8? And he continued questioning them, but who do you say that I am? So that would be the question for you and I. Who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? You know, if he's not the biblical Jesus, you may have the wrong one. Because there's many, many people that are believing in other than the biblical Jesus. And they're calling him Jesus. So what Jesus is doing is he's asking relevant truth questions to move his disciples beyond the preconceived notions of who he's supposed to be or who the Messiah is supposed to be. Because remember, in their minds, the Messiah was supposed to be someone who comes in, takes over, overthrows Roman authority and delivers them and the kingdom of God comes. But that's not what's happening. He's acting just like a regular man. But along the way, as he's acting like a regular man, he's acting like God because he's healing people. He's, he's rebuking the wind and the waves. He's, doing, he's casting out demons. And this is how Mark is portraying Jesus Christ. And I think as you, we go along, we will see that Jesus is... It, a very intriguing person. And he's a person that gains attention, keeps attention, and gets us to focus more specifically on what we ought to be looking at when we consider who Jesus is and what he has done. Because confusion abounds even our, in our day about who Jesus is. And today there remains the profound need to take a fresh look at the person of Jesus Christ and the purpose of his life on this earth. Why did he come? And why did he stay three years? Why did he do that? So then the Gospel of Mark is a reliable witness of the astounding person and the transforming mission of Jesus in the context of the inbreaking eternal rule of God in the world. See, what you do see when you see Jesus Christ and what the Disciples began to see, they began to see the kingdom there. They began to see Jesus as the king of the kingdom and that he had the authority over things that no one else had the authority over. 
And so when they see that, they see that God has an eternal rule on this earth as he has it in heaven. So again, the two essential questions that will become apparent as Jesus calls disciples to follow him are going to be twofold. Number one, who do you perceive yourself to be? And secondly, who do you perceive God to be? And those are the questions that you're going to find that Mark answers. In fact, he answers it to such a point that you're going to find yourself either siding with the followers of Jesus or siding with the opponents of Jesus. There's no middle ground. Either you're his opponents or you're his followers. And his disciples flip back and forth in those positions. They're not always his followers. They are sometimes opposing him and even rebuking him. And so they're against him about what he's doing and what he, he plans to accomplish in this world. They're not getting it. They don't, you know, reading the Gospels, the disciples don't get it right away. So that means if they don't get it right away, you and I don't get it right away. So we need to hear it again and again and again, right? And so if you have never studied through the Gospel of Mark, I pray that you would think about uh, and consider as we go through this that that would be a book that you would read through. They say that even a slow reader can read through the Gospel of Mark in about an hour and a half. All right? So if you're a fast reader, you could probably do it in an hour. But to just look at it and look at it and look at it and look at it. And as we go through it, that we would pray, and you should pray, and I will pray, that um, we would come to a place where we would see Jesus Christ in the way he actually is. So we can grow more to be his disciple. Because you know the Gospel of Mark is all about real discipleship. Because real discipleship is going to be transformative. There's no such person who follows Christ without a changed life. There's no such person who follows Christ and they cannot be enamored and taken in by who Jesus is and what he says and what he does and what he accomplishes. There's no way you could ignore that. And real followers of Jesus Christ, you're going to find who are real disciples, it's going to be very Christological that Jesus Christ is going to be formed in his disciples in a very transformative way where the gospel of Mark wants us to become servants like Jesus Christ. And that should be the end goal for you and I. So you know what? I'm going to end it right there. I'm going to pick it up next week. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for the gospel of Mark. Thank you, Lord, even for some of the things that we learned this morning. I pray, Lord, as we go along, we too would be able to answer those two questions. Lord, who do we perceive ourselves to be in light of meeting you, in light of hearing your words, in light of seeing your miracles, in light of getting to know your person and and seeing how you accomplish things? And then, Lord, let us be able to answer the second question, who do we perceive God to be? I pray, Lord, that you would align our thoughts and our understanding of who you are by your word, 
so we have a correct understanding of you, so, Lord, we can more clearly worship you and adore you, and we can be amazed by you just like the first audience was. And we can know that the words that come from the word of God and the mouth of Jesus are authoritative. They come not from this world, but from the very presence of God in heaven. And that the Lord Jesus Christ was not only the God-man, but he was both God and he was both man. And Lord, we thank you that you came to seek and to serve and to give your life a ransom for many. So I pray, Lord, that we would be able to see you in a way that we have never seen you before. And I pray that our worship would become more crystallized and our life would be more focused. And I pray in Christ's name, amen.